0: It may be hard to remember, but there was a time when Americans could laugh at and with their presidents. Yes, down in front.
1: Mr. President, may I ask a question concerning Cuba? At any time in the future, is there any chance that you might recognize Fidel Castro?
2: Well, certainly, I'd recognize him any time. He's got a big beard, smokes a cigar, and wears one of those sissy
3: caps.
0: Coming up, Part 2, Hour 2 of our special on Presidential Humor, The First Family Rides Again, here on The Off Ramp. This is Bob Smith, and welcome to The Off-Ramp, a place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Today we're continuing with Part 2, Hour 2, of a special I produced in 1982 called The First Family Rides Again. It's about presidential humor and features interviews with famous comedian Rich Little and comedy writer Earl Dowd. In our last episode, we asked Earl Dowd what's the secret to good political humor, the kind that everyone can laugh at, the kind that is almost extinct today. He spoke of it in terms of the comedy medium at the time, LP Records. I think, first of
1: all, that people buy record albums about uh, politicians who they like. It's very difficult to sell an album about an unpopular politician. But also, I do know you can't fool the public. You've got to give them funny material. If the album was uh, not funny, it wouldn't sell. I don't care who it was about. I did do other albums where I had the families of the presidents, more or less. Uh, uh, the Honest to God We Really Mean It very last Nixon album, <laughs> uh, which I did on Brunswick, had the Nixon, uh, some of his family. Uh, Henry the I was about Kissinger, about his family. A Spiro T. Agnew Is a Riot with Stanley Myron Handelman. Now, that, of course, was about uh, Spiro T. Agnew. I've done about uh, 12 albums. Practically all of them are, are of a political nature. I think you have to be funny. I think you have to be timely. I think you have to be tasteful. And you have to be about somebody that they care about. Nobody's going to spend 8 or 9 bucks to buy an album about somebody who they don't like. You would think maybe because you're mean to them or nasty to them and they're unpopular that everybody would buy it. But I didn't find that to be the case.
4: Not with the Nixon album, for instance, huh?
1: The Nixon album didn't do well Mm. at all.
4: Uh
0: Now let's get back to the fun with The First Family Rides Again. Nancy,
2: look at that little boy over there. He must have gotten separated from the tour.
5: Oh, you mean the little one standing there staring up the picture of George Washington, dear?
2: Yes, I'll just go over and stand behind him and tell him what a great country this is. Excuse me, little boy. That's the father of our country you're looking at. His name is George Washington. He was also the first president of the United States and a great president he was, too. He fought for our country and made it the great country that it is today. And after you finish school, you can grow up to be president, just like George Washington. And you can live here in the White House, just like me.
6: What? Me? Leave Fantasy Island? Neither. The plane!
3: The plane!
2: I play it, Sam. have played it for her, you can play it for me.
7: How does one become an impressionist? There are no schools that teach the art. It's difficult to describe just how to do the job, and let's face it, it's more of a talent than a skill. Some people just will not be able to learn how to be an impressionist. For Rich Little, his career as an
4: impressionist began at a very early age. I understand your impressions began during your cowboy and Indian days when you were a youngster. You liked Alan
3: Ladd?
8: <laughs> yeah, I was a big fan of Alan Ladd, so I'll tell you. He was, he was the number one hero. I think that was after Shane.
3: Uh-huh. And,
8: uh huh. And as a matter of fact, I got to meet him when he came to Ottawa. He's making a picture called Saskatchewan. Uh, he's making a picture called Saskatchewan in Alberta, which was interesting, but uh, with uh, Shelley Winters, and he came to Ottawa to Crawley Films there to do the dubbing, to do the looping. And, uh, of course, uh, my friend and myself, who were Alan Ladd fanatics, ran ran down to Crawley Films with our with our little pictures that we'd drawn of him in our scrapbooks, and, uh, and he signed them, and he was extremely nice. <laughs> so I always think of that today
3: when people come up to me with... Uh, pictures and, uh, you know, programs and things. I keep saying to myself, hey, this is me, <laughs> so be nice. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Does the name Clarence Bell still mean anything in your past?
8: Clarence Bell, he was a principal of mine.
4: Yeah, Lissker Collegiate Secondary school? Yeah, Lissker
8: Collegiate, yeah. One of the first voices I ever imitated, actually, It's Clarence Bell.
4: I understand he looked like W.C. Fields to you.
8: Uh, you... yeah, well, he had a kind of a, yeah, he did have kind of a big nose <laughs> and I had a lisp. He had a lisp, but he talked like this. Richard, what, what are you doing? And I used to answer him in his voice and say, Nothing, Mr. Bell, I'm just studying. <laughs> and he'd say to me, Why are you speaking in that stupid voice? And I was tempted to say, Well, because I'm doing you. But I didn't say that.
4: <laughs> you used to draw pretty good crowds at recess doing that, I guess.
8: Um, yeah, well, before the teacher arrived in the morning uh, for class, you see, I'd get up and, and do what they were going to do when they got there. And, of course, the kids would fall about, you know. And then, of course, we'd have a lookout at the door, and then the real teacher would come along. And he would do exactly what I just did a few minutes ago, and kids would laugh some more. And uh, four teachers could never figure out why walking in the door and and, and, and talking and saying good morning got such laughs. laughs.
4: Mr. Fitzsimmons, he was a science teacher. He must have been one of the other folks that you uh, imitated, too. Oh, yeah,
8: Fitzy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was one of the first ones. He had a very nasal voice like this, yeah. I used to end up doing all the teachers. And I was always worried that when I got out of school that I'd have no career as an impersonator because how can you go around the country imitating teachers? Right. A matter of fact, when I went into the Copacabana, this is a true story in, oh, 1965 or six, uh, the Copa, New York, which was a terrific thrill for me. Uh, uh, the teachers came down from Ottawa uh, to the COPA, to see my show, and were very upset that I didn't do them.
4: Oh, is that right?
8: Yeah. I mean, could you imagine doing my teachers in front of an American audience <laughs> in New York? I mean, what, 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 why would I do that? It wouldn't mean anything.
7: After high school, Rich Little got a job as a disc jockey at CJET Radio in Smith Falls, Ontario. But he continued to do his impressions before local clubs and civic groups and fraternal organizations. We asked him what some of his early impressions were.
8: Uh, Jimmy Stewart was... First ones that I've ever, well, I Well, John Wayne was probably a, a one that I was doing very early. And I do a lot of obscure voices like Fred McMurray and uh, Lloyd Bridges and, uh, and people like that, uh, Glenn Ford and uh, Sterling Hayden, and uh, a lot of voices that I
4: never really use publicly. That's sort of part of your trademark, though, doing people who other people don't mimic. Uh, some of the easier people to mimic, everybody does. You do those plus others. Yeah. Gib Kerr, the owner of Spotlight Studios, managed you in those early days. He caught your act at one of the clubs. You were doing clubs and fraternal organizations and things like that?
8: Uh, Well, we were actually in theater together, little theater. And uh, he was uh, managing a dance studio and he wanted to get into management. And uh, he started managing me. And then he was gonna look at Paul Anka, but he never got around to doing it. And uh, I think he he regretted that because Paul took off like a skyrocket right about that time with uh, Diana and Gibb uh, ended up just managing me and I'm traveling around the country with me and came to Hollywood with me and then we parted our ways about
4: 67 uh, or something like that. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, Canadian television specials that you did in those days was called Liberace in Wonderland? Yeah. Now that was what, Alice in Wonderland with all kinds of uh, celebrities? Yeah, that
8: was the first uh, thing I ever played where I played all the parts. In other words, uh, I played Liberace as, uh, <laughs> if you'll pardon the expression, as Alice. and uh, that sounds funny now and George Burns as the uh, as the uh, the Caterpillar and Kurt Douglas as the Cheshire Cat and Alfred Hitchcock as Humpty Dumpty which was perfect because you know he'd sit up there in the wall and say good evening I'm Humpty he'd dump and then of course he'd fall off the wall and crack you know we'll be back in a moment with an omelet but uh, it it was fun it was of course been black and white if that dates me and um, it was a little primitive but it got a big reaction and so uh, years later when I decided to do uh, Christmas Carol as a one man show with with Fields as uh, Scrooge uh, some of those same techniques were used and I filmed that in Canada too, and it uh, went on home box office. has been on there for three years now, and uh, won an Emmy and a lot of things. And uh, but but that uh, Liberace in Wonderland was the was the start of all that. Now I'm going to do Robin Hood uh, as a one man show this fall, and with Groucho as Robin Hood and uh, John Wayne as Little John, and uh, Carol Channing as Maid Marian.
3: Surprise! Surprise! Happy birthday to
1: you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, Mr. President! Happy birthday to you!
2: Well, my goodness, I, I am surprised.
0: Blow out, out the candles, come on, on. Blow out the candles. Oh no, I.
2: Really, I. Well, all right. Here goes. Just let me rest a minute and I'll, I'll blow out the other half.
7: <laughs> it's ironic that Rich Little made political satire a way of life in his act, a way to support himself, because Rich Little comes from a very distinguished political family
4: in Canada. I guess several of the family members of the last century of yours were very much involved in politics. A couple of them served in Parliament. Was that John Wilson representing Wentworth in the upper parliament in the 20s, 1820s, and William Carruthers Little, your great grandfather, a member of
8: parliament? i talking to my mother. <laughs> Just did a little reading. You <laughs> went down to the archives. That's right. Dug out the little file. Totally, very <laughs> short. Um, and you really did your homework.
4: Well, thank you.
8: Well, yeah, I did have, I did have, uh, uh, yeah, a couple of uh, of ancient relatives that were in politics. You're right on my mother's side, member of. Uh, Member of Parliament, yeah. That's very true. Um, of course, uh, you know, so long ago, I mean, there's no chance of imitating them or anything. But, <laughs> Medi- but I guess it's kind of a, a political family, although the last couple of generations there hasn't been anybody in politics, though.
3: Yeah,
4: your father was in medicine, right? My
8: father was a doctor, right, uh-huh. that wondered when I was going to stop talking to myself. And think about an occupation.
4: <laughs> did your folks view it that way at all? You were playing around?
8: Uh, and- my brothers did. Uh-huh. Uh, my brothers just thought I was weird I mean the guy's in his room all the time with the tape recorder and being all these other people I mean you know that's just one step uh, away from the home as far as they were concerned <laughs> and uh, they they were all you know busy uh, pursuing a career I think and uh, they wanted to know when I was going to grow up uh, I never amount to anything you know uh, so they go to their room and do their studies and I go to my room with my tape recorder you know
4: didn't one of your brothers do cartoon voices
8: well my my eldest brother fred did cartoon voices Uh and um he still does and he does them extremely well too as a matter of fact mel blank thinks he's about the best he's ever heard
4: but was that right
8: yeah he's sort of uh in the wings uh you know uh, certain voices that mel is having trouble with because of his age my brother's filling in for him so he may he may uh Step into Mel's uh, shoes. It's going to be hard because Mel is the best at what he does, and my brother
0: knows that, but he's he's a close second. Presidential humor is our topic today on the off-ramp. This is Bob Smith, and for this episode, we've gone back to my vaults for a 1982 interview I did with comedian Rich Little and comedy writer Earl Dowd.
1: Roger, Atlanta Control. This is Air Force One departing you now. Request additional air check, over.
6: You know, I really have to hand it to the president. The way he handled those air traffic controllers,
1: he taught them a thing or two. Would you mind if I sat in with you? Oh, good morning, sir. We'd enjoy very much having you sit up here with us. We were just remarking what a good job you did with the air traffic controllers.
2: Well, Dennis Morgan and I used to fly these things together. (laughs) Is that so, sir? Oh, yes, yes. In Painting the Clouds with Sunshine and Hellcats of the Navy, we logged over 100,000 hours. That's incredible, sir. You know, I shot down four Japanese fighter planes in one afternoon in 1944. Uh, That was in the Pacific? No, that was in Lassie Comes Home. (laughs)
1: Uh, But again, sir, our congratulations on your handling of the air traffic controller problem.
6: Right. Like I was saying, sir, you taught them a thing or two now well, that's for sure. Tallahassee Center, this is Air Force 1. Request your clearance for current heading and altitude. Over. Thank you for calling Tallahassee Center Control. We're not in right now. <laughs> but if you leave your flight number and altitude at the sound of the beep, we'll get right back to you. Right back to you.
7: Right back to you. Right back to you. Right back to you. Obviously, with Rich Little's voice talents, he can become in sound almost anyone he wants to be. You could do a very expensive-sounding show with the top names of show business past and present for relatively pennies if you had one man. And don't think radio station managers around the country didn't think of that as a gimmick to exploit.
8: Well, I, you know what I used to do was, I, uh, uh, station managers had this idea across the country that if I came on, um, on April Fool's Day and um and took over the radio station for the entire day as different celebrities it would be a cute idea because it was april fool's day and i did like the, the early morning show as jimmy durani and i did the rock show as elvis presley or something and i did the news as david brinkley and the women's uh, news as carol channing and uh, it was a cute idea. It was a lot of work, bad. Uh, but it went over tremendously, and, uh, and other uh, stations found out about it. And the first thing you know, every April 1st, I was doing this marathon for very little <laughs> money because it was the hardest thing I think I ever did in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how hard it is to do your shift. Imagine doing six others. But uh, what happened was in Toronto at a station called Chum was when it really backfired because uh, here I was... Well, you're almost uh, do, do, doing Elvis Presley you know play, playing the records and doing Charm of and of course and, uh, and John Wayne Will the commentary and the first thing you know uh, one of the uh, uh, program ma- managers was saying there's a crowd outside the studio here they all think these people are in here <laughs> and then the next time we looked out he said there's 200 people out here waiting for Elvis waiting for Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and and uh, then we found out that people were were coming by car. Some people were flying. Some people were coming by bus. They were walking from all over to meet the real celebrities. And when I stepped out, because I wasn't well known then, when I stepped out, I said, "Boo!" <laughs> 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 they almost started a riot. Where's Elvis? I said, well, "Elvis is was, was right here." And they said, "You're a fraud! Kill him!" You know. Lord. So I. Uh, Ended up, I think, running out of town as fast
4: as I could.
3: <laughs> quite a scene. Uh,
8: maybe it'd be better today that I'm more well known, but if, there were a few angry people who had spent their uh, their allowances, you know, and, and their, their weeks' pay to, to get to the studio. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing, though, to be able to fool them like that?
3: That's very good. So it was a
8: nice compliment for for me, but it wasn't very good for my health.
4: Does it still um, uh, surprise you sometimes when an impersonation or impression that you're not quite completely satisfied with goes over so big with people?
8: Uh, well, there's a lot of people that I do that uh, that I'm always disappointed. They're not more well-known because they're some of my best. I do Tony Newley, Anthony Newley in my act, uh, which is a lot of fun to do because he's so exaggerated with a Cockney accent and everything. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't know him. It's right. interesting that a lady came up to me one time and said to me that she thought my Anthony Newley was my best impression. And I said, oh, you a big fan of his? And she said, well, not really. I've never seen him. And I said, wait a minute, you've never seen him? She said, no, you've never heard him or seen him? And she said, no, I don't know who he is. I said, well, how can it be my best if you don't know who he is? And she said, well, I saw you do him before on TV and it's better now. (laughs) I said, wait a minute, you saw me do it before and it's better now, how do you know it's better? if you? I said, just forget it, you know. But uh, I started thinking about that. That's that's very strange, you know, that she didn't know who the original was. But I can understand that to a certain degree because sometimes when I go to England, I'll watch England's greatest impersonator, which is Mike Yarwood, who does all the political ones over there, and I'll go and see him perform. And I find myself applauding and laughing and reacting to uh, Harold Wilson, and the leader of the Conservative Party, and, and people I don't even know what they sound like. And it, just because it sounds different and the accents there and he's, he's funny lines and stuff, I find myself laughing, and I don't even know who he's doing. you know. So it is true that you know, sometimes if you, if you think it sounds good, uh, you'll react.
4: At home, I understand your daughter has a favorite impression, and it's not political, and it's, well, it's show business, but it's a, one of her favorite characters on a TV show. Kermit the Frog?
8: Yeah, uh, Kermit the Frog. Well, it's a toss-up. Whether she likes Kermit the Frog better than Frank Sinatra or Kenny Rogers.
4: Oh, is that right?
8: Yeah, but she likes all three of them. Uh-huh. And she loves Frank, because she sings uh, New York. Uh, my daughter sings New York, and, um, She knows all the words and everything. Of course, you know, she's 25. But, uh, no, I'm putting you on. She's four years old. (laughs) She's four years old, and and I love it when she sings New York, because she'll do what Frank does. She'll go, and if I can make it there. It's funny to hear this. (laughs) I told Frank about it, and he said he'd love to hear it. So I'm, I'm trying to sneak up behind her someday when she's doing it with the tape recorder on, you know. Once she knows I'm taping her, she'll clam up. Oh yeah, you know the way kids are. Right. If, you, if they do something funny, you say, now do that for Aunt Minnie and Uncle Harry, and then they, 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 there's nothing, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but she, she's funny, too, because we'll be driving in the car, and she'll hear Frank singing New York, the real Frank. And she'll say to me, is that you, Dad, or is that Frank? I'll say, no, no, that's Frank. You know? Then she'll just sing it with him.
4: Well, it took you about seven years to do Frank Sinatra, I understand.
8: Yeah, Frank's difficult to do, it's an attitude more than anything, but I enjoy doing him because I admire him so much and uh, he's a good friend and uh, he's a good man and uh, I got a kick out of doing him because I know all his mannerisms
7: backwards, you know. Speaking of celebrities, one of the cuts on the first family album deals with the death of a show business personality.
6: And now to say a few words on behalf of the deceased, the President of the United States.
2: You know, they say the president's schedule is a busy one, and it is, but not too busy to say goodbye to a friend. So today I've canceled a shopping spree with Nancy to come back to Hollywood to pay my final respects to a great actor. You know, he had a way with him, and he will be sorely missed. His passing has definitely created a void in my life. He was unselfish and he was always thinking of others. You know, I remember one day after working on a picture in very humid weather, I was tired. He came into my dressing room, smiling that smile of his. And then I remember he took a glass of water out of my hand and without batting an eye, he poured it down my pants. He then shoved a banana up my nose. We'll all miss you, Bonzo. You will always be the chimp. Coming up, we'll look at comedy
7: writing, and we'll tell you how an airline employee of the 1950s became one of the top TV comedy writers of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Next, a
0: conversation with Earl Dowd. This is Bob Smith and you're listening to a 1982 feature I did on Presidential Humor with comedian Rich Little and comedy writer Earl Dowd. The First Family Rides Again. You know,
2: I like the Lincoln Room. It's nice and comfortable and traditional, especially since the Carters took the farm tools out. <laughs> I Think I'll just turn on the television here. I'll play it, Sam. I uh, have played it for her, you can play it for me. I play it for everybody. I play it for him and play it for them. And keep playing it till I say don't play it. And then play it. Then play it again. I hate musicals.
6: <laughs> Ronald. Ronald. What? What's that? Over here, Ronald.
2: A pale, white, transparent figure. Is that you, Nancy?
6: No, no, no. I'm the ghost of Abraham Lincoln.
2: The Abraham Lincoln?
6: Yes, the 15th president of the United States.
2: Well, excuse me, sir, but if I remember my American history correctly, you were the 16th president. I never count Polk. Nobody ever does. Tell me, Mr. Lincoln. I mean, what can I do for you? You're the actor, aren't you? That's right. I was shot by an actor. No, it wasn't me, sir. I've got witnesses. I was home doing my homework that night.
6: Relax. Just relax. I like to drop by every once in a while to see what's happening. Is that... uh, bratty kid still around?
2: No, the Carters moved out.
6: Good, good. Boy, I've had a terrible time relating to some of the occupants, you know. You've really had some flakes in here. There was this one guy from Texas who kept showing me his scar.
2: That was Lyndon Johnson.
6: And there was this one guy who kept falling into the drapes.
2: Oh, that was Jerry Ford. Were there any presidents that you admired? I like President Haig. He is not the president. He's just my secretary of state.
6: That's not what he told me.
2: You know, we have a lot in common. I mean, you're from Illinois, I'm from Illinois. You're a Republican, I'm a Republican. You made a great speech at Gettysburg. I had some dramatic lines in a Sinatra roast. (laughs) Actually, our careers are running quite parallel. Still, is there any way I can be assured of being as famous a president as you? I mean, could you give me some tips?
6: Yes, I can. Remember three things, be honest, Mm -hmm. be humble, Yes and dance a jig on Fifth Avenue with a banana in your
2: ear. Really? I guarantee it. Well, thank you, Mr. Lincoln. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll try it.
6: <laughs> I finally got
7: even with an actor. The man behind much of the humor of the first family albums is Earl Dowd, who wrote and produced both the Vaughn Meter albums and the sequel with Rich Little. He's a top television comedy writer who's worked for live TV shows, situation comedies, humor magazines, and the movies. But it wasn't always that way.
1: I I wanted to be an actor, actually. and I I had devised a series for TV. Uh, I was working at American Airlines as a ticket agent. And I had an idea where a pilot and a co-pilot and two stewardesses, uh, that there would be a series about them, and that each week they'd be in a different location. And what a natural for an airline to sponsor, because their product would be all over the screen all the time. So I thought I'd really you know, hit the gong with this. And I went to uh, American and to TWA, but I just couldn't make a sale with this. I couldn't get them interested in doing it. It was the very early days of television. Perhaps it was a little too expensive. But uh, I wrote a script, and uh, uh, someone saw it who told me they thought I should get into writing, and then the girl next to me uh, at the airline, her airline was a friend of Bob and Ray's. Have you ever heard of them? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, could I please submit some material to them? And she said, okay. And uh, they liked it and gave me a job. You must try, if you want to be a comedy writer, to get your material to a working comedian somehow, if you can. And that's how it will happen for you.
4: You work with Jackie Gleason also. Yes, Wait, I that? never met him. Is that right?
1: I wrote for him for six months. I never met him. I stood next to him in the men's room once, <laughs> but he was coughing a lot. And I figured I better not bother him. <laughs>
4: okay. Who was the uh, easiest to work with uh, when you were writing for people like Steve Allen, Jack Parr, Johnny Carson? Was there somebody who uh, more or less came in and said, hey, that sounds good, we'll try that, more or less trusted you, uh, as opposed to, say, someone who maybe second-guessed his writers a lot?
1: Yeah, Jack Parr, I think, was kindest to me. He thought I had a special kind of writing talent, and he let me work alone at home. And uh, we did a lot of drag nets. Takeoffs on that that uh, your audience may remember. Mm -hmm. I liked working with Jack Carr very much. He was very nice to me. Bob and Ray was my most fun uh, interview. Uh, Bob and Ray was uh, the first thing that I ever did, and uh, I found uh, them really relaxed and fun to be with. I was the only guy, and so we could and we did all sorts of wild things. You know, they used to have that overstocked warehouse where they were always getting. Putting these things on
3: sale.
1: <laughs> I remember there was a bread factory that caught on fire and we offered for sale 5,000 pieces of toast. <laughs> we could always do these crazy things <laughs> with
4: them. You know, you said I was the only guy. Does that mean it was just you, Bob, and Ray?
1: It's me, Bob, and Ray.
4: Is that right? That one's been tremendous. Yes, they had tremendous comedy. I always liked their material too. Yeah,
1: they were great. It was five shows a week. Lovely. So it was pretty busy.
4: And Wally Ballou, did you have anything to do with Wally? Yeah,
1: no, they do Wally. Uh huh yeah I, that Wally was there, but they did uh, uh Mary Magoon with her recipes, <laughs> ginger ale salad and octopi yeah if Mary used to talk like that, I did her voice as the house nurse on the first family, <laughs> but uh, everyone I worked with I liked I, you know Johnny Carson I have a lot of respect for
3: as a writer he was a writer you know before he was a comedian mm-hmm. uh
1: Johnson winters is perhaps the most creative comedy mind in the business, but also the most undisciplined. Mm-hmm. You can never get him to read a script. Uh, Sid Caesar was great. I enjoyed working with him, and
3: uh, oh,
7: everybody who I was with. Earl Dowd also wrote for a show that today is lampooned for what people feel is its unreality, the unreality of a family situation. And that show is Father Knows Best.
1: Father Knows Best?
7: Right.
1: Uh, that's kind of a preppy family today, I guess.
7: Uh-huh.
3: But
1: that's a long time ago. There were families like that. There still are a lot of families like that. Where I I live, as a matter of fact, there are a lot of families like
4: that. that, Is your family like that?
1: No. (laughs) My family is more like the Adams family. But the Father Knows Best does
4: exist. Welcome Back, Cotter, was a completely different type of series in terms of a sort of street humor in a way, almost what we would uh, have at one time considered crude. Was it uh, hard to make a transition into that?
1: No, well, you sort of have to adjust, and I had help other writers who perhaps were more in tune to that show than I was. My favorite uh, one that I did was called Epstein's Madonna, uh, where they painted a nude on the back fence to beautify the school, and it was potter's Wife's Space. Do you remember that?
3: Yes. <laughs> that particular episode.
1: So I think in order to exist, uh, you have to be versatile uh, and able to adapt to different things. Television writing is very difficult for me. Uh, it's It's a certain kind of level of writing that I find hard to do, Uh, I would rather write uh, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn movies, or I would rather write Arthur, something like that. Mm -hmm. Dudley's a good friend of mine, incidentally. We're talking about maybe doing an album together.
2: Nancy. Yes, dear. Now, be honest. At my age, do you think I should be doing something like this?
5: Believe me, Ronnie, every once in a while it's healthy to do this sort of thing. It isn't just for young people, you know. A lot of people our age do it. I hear even George Burns did it.
2: But not while wearing roller skates.
5: Probably not.
2: (laughs) And why shorty pajamas? Why can't I just wear the normal lounge type?
5: Oh, Ronnie, you look good, dear. I like the way you look.
2: And the water wings?
5: I like those, too
2: Listen, can I take off the water wings and the bunny ears?
5: Oh, I wish you wouldn't
2: Nancy, I'm really surprised at you I mean, this is strange I wouldn't think you'd go in for this And I've known you an awful long time
5: I suppose you want me to take off the pirate boots And throw away the pogo stick and the dumbo ears
2: Can I remind you of something? I am the president of the United States.
5: Ooh, <laughs> that's what makes it so wild. <laughs> now, Ronnie, Ronnie dear, just grit your teeth and say, I'm going to jump in with both feet.
2: All right, I'll do it. But I just wish I could take off the beaver tail and get rid of the skates.
5: <laughs> oh, it's too late now, dear. Mwah. good luck.
2: I'll probably be sorry in the morning. All right, stand by, Mr. President. You're on. And cue the president. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. (laughs) More of Rich Little and Earl Dowd and the
7: first family rides again in just a moment.
0: This is Bob Smith, and you're listening to a 1982 feature I did on Presidential Humor with comedian Rich Little and comedy writer Earl Dowd. The first family rides again. Good
2: evening, this is Walter Cronkite. I'm at the White House, and we're about to tour this historic landmark with the current resident, President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Good evening, President Reagan. Well, Walter, welcome to our home. Now, just follow me down this hall and... isn't that room ahead the White House press room? Well, yes, it is, Walter. This is where our press secretaries and various staff members hold magazine and newspaper interviews. Well, may we go in? Well, I'll just open the door.
8: It's not gonna work. I think the president's wrong.
2: Don't quote me, but he just doesn't know what he's doing. I didn't tell you this, but this is not the right way to go. Money can't buy that kind of loyalty. (laughs) Do you miss the good old days of Hollywood? Oh, I'm sorry, Walter, I never speak of films. I hope you don't mind. Hollywood to me is a thing of the past. Oh, I understand. Uh, Where were we? Uh, Isn't this the Dolly Madison Room? It is, Walter, but we renamed it. It's the Ginger Rogers Salon. (laughs) As you may recall, she was Dolly Madison. Also, Kitty Foyle, Roxy Hart, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And, of course, Stage Door, Follow the Fleet, and Monkey Business. Well, did you make any films with her? I'm sorry, Walter, I never speak of films. (laughs) I hope you don't mind.
7: Writing for television and records isn't the only thing that's kept Earl Dowd busy over the years. He even wrote for that humor magazine just about every little boy reads at one time in his life, Mad Magazine.
4: Is that sort of something you did on the side for your more or less for your own ego or was that some, i knew you did it for money i'm sure everybody does things for I money i do anything for money uh-huh. that's
1: why i live in this one room shack <laughs> <laughs> I,
4: I don't believe you earl i can't see you but i don't believe it
1: well we have two rooms
4: uh-huh, two room shack huh uh well, was that did
1: the, i do it for money well, or was, for love is that what you? yeah saying?
4: for love more or less. i
1: did it for free issues they send me they still send me mad <laughs> no i really love doing mad and mad does Fairly well, and uh, but you write everything on spec for that magazine. No, no one's listening, right?
3: Right. Okay. <laughs> you have to write and then get
1: it accepted. You know, they can turn you down. Uh-huh. So you don't like to write for that's on speculation. But uh, most of us who've been writing for it for a long time don't have a problem with that.
7: Earlier in the interview, Earl Dadd told us that. It's difficult for him to write comedy. We ask him if he knew anybody it was easy for. Well, no, I've never really known anyone
1: it's easy for, but uh, if if I were a comedy writer, or I wanted to be a comedy writer, or a writer of any kind, this is a very strange business. And uh, sometimes it's dangerous to be honest. But let let me be honest. It's uh, a business where you have to, you now this sounds very cliche, but you have to be at the right place at the right time, and it isn't always how good a writer you are, it's if you have a friend on the show who's going to hire you, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm being very honest with you, it's, it's, television to me is not a medium for art's sake, it's, what you write quite often doesn't turn out to be what goes on the air. Am I answering your question? Yes, yes. I've totally forgotten your question. Just keep your question. I'm into my own thing here.
4: Okay, you go ahead and keep on with it. Because I'm trying to do the greatest thing I can for what I'm being paid to do, but I shouldn't really do that. I should just sit down and write it and say, I don't care whether they change it or not, mm-hmm. and just hand it in. And that's the right attitude. I know that in acting and in writing that it's not it's not like the 8-to-5 or 9-to-5 occupation of most people, but at times you might be a staff writer for a particular program. You've been a, a well, veteran. That's the best deal, huh? to become a staff writer
3: for a show. Uh-huh. When they set up a situation comedy,
1: they hire four or five staff writers. And those staff writers write as many episodes as they can because they get paid residuals per episode. And then if you're a freelancer, like I am at the moment, and have been for a long time, <clears throat> then you get what's, they, what's left over that they can't handle. And it's few and far between. So I'm, I'm not staffed, we're talking about situation comedy now. Uh-huh. Uh, of all the variety shows that I did, uh, that was the week that was, uh, and Gleason and uh, mm-hmm. whatever. Those were sta- done by staff writers, and uh, uh, they don't hire, they don't buy outside stuff.
4: Now Jackie Gleason got one of those big lifetime contracts from the network years and years ago. Did that mean his writers were paid that well? Uh, no, <laughs>
1: but Jackie Gleason pays very well because he. He knows what it is to be poor, and he appreciates that, and he appreciates talent. And Jackie Gleason is known in the business as a man who almost, who overpays, you might say, which is not necessarily true with all comedians, Mm -hmm. but it certainly is true with him. He's a
3: very generous man then.
4: since we started out talking about uh, Sid Caesar and Father Knows Best and then those shows and then we compared to what you're doing today you probably have a lot more creative freedom in the topics you can cover as opposed to what you've covered in the 50s
3: yes definitely (laughs) because uh, the
1: uh, there's a lot of things you can say and get away with so to speak today that you couldn't in in those days you were terribly restricted Uh, so I do feel that, that you can write about more and there's a lot more to write about but of course, there's a lot more that's been
3: done that you can't do again, mm-hmm. too,
4: so. Some people think that they work better with limitations. It makes them work harder to find things that are funny.
1: But you don't want to work hard. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to get that weekly check and go home. I, I can't fall in love with writing for television, as I said before. You know, I just do the best I can, and, uh, and sometimes I, I, get, I fall in love with something and I really try and do a great job, and that's when it's destroyed. Do I sound bitter?
4: <laughs> you sound like what I've heard. Okay. What I've heard about. That
1: I've been there, I guess.
7: Uh-huh. You kind of get an indication of Earl Dowd's sense of humor when you realize he's a man who, in New York City, once did a radio talk show called Earl Dowd's Banana Paradise?
1: Yes, I've it, it, uh, lived on this island, and I took John Lennon and everybody for walks around the island and uh, made believe there were all sorts of things for them to do, like to take the tire away from the gorilla... One of the things we had, and, and I put them <laughs> through the ringer there. I'm trying to do that as a TV show now in a different sort of way, where I will interview you and it will rain on us in the studio, and nobody pays any attention.
4: <laughs> Is this a, a pilot, or:
1: Yeah, Do uh-huh. you're not going to tell me any more than that? No <laughs> No,'m not going to give you my idea. You're too good. Uh, no, no, I didn't mean that. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. comes the President, ladies and gentlemen.
2: I think we should get right to the questions. Over here. Uh,
6: Chuck Foley, Buffalo Nickel, Mr. President. Yes, Chuck. Uh, What is your reaction to the environmentalist's claim that Secretary of the Interior Watt is selling out our precious natural resources to greedy business interests?
2: Well, I don't know, but I'll let him answer that as soon as he gets back from Yellowstone National Condo. Yes, yes, the lady with the rash, yes.
3: (laughs) Mr.
1: President, is it true that you're planning to divorce
7: Nancy so that you can marry Brooke Shields?
3: (laughs) Well,
2: I'm sorry, I refuse to answer questions from the National Enquirer. (laughs) Please identify yourself before asking the questions, will you? Uh, The gentleman with the duck. Yes, sir. (laughs) I have a question, Mr. President. Well, listen, I ask you please to identify yourself. How am I supposed to know who you are? You've got to state who you are. Now go ahead. George Bush.
3: <laughs> who is he? He's the Vice President.
2: Well, what happened with the deal with Ford? through. All right, go ahead, Mr. Bush. Mr. President, last week, you invited several liberal Democrats to dinner. Did you have a special purpose in having them at the White House? Yes, Nancy has never seen one. (laughs) The lady in the rear over there, yes. Mr.
7: President,
5: the anti-abortion lobby says that every unborn baby has a right to life. In your opinion, sir, at what point should a fetus be regarded as a human being?
2: When it votes Republican. (laughs) Yes, down in front.
1: Mr. President, may I ask a question concerning Cuba? At any time in the future, is there any chance that you might recognize Fidel Castro?
2: Well, certainly, I'd recognize him any time. He's got a big beard, smokes a cigar, and wears one of those sissy caps. Coming up, Rich Little and Earl Dow tell
7: us what their favorite comedy routines are on The First Family Rides Again.
0: Presidential humor is our topic today on The Off-Ramp. This is Bob Smith, and for this episode, we've gone back to my vaults for a 1982 interview I did with comedian Rich Little and comedy writer Earl Dowd. Rich Little and Earl
7: Dowd both received rave reviews for their teamwork on the first Family Rides Again album. In fact, they received very high praise from a very important critic, the president himself.
4: Well, he
8: and Nancy wrote you a letter and said they were just howling at the album. They were howling at it, yeah. We we howled at it from beginning to end. I always tried to picture Nancy howling at it. <laughs> I somehow couldn't do that.
4: Well, uh, he apparently liked it, as I understand. Yeah, no,
8: he loved it. Mm-hmm. He really did. And that I'm glad he did, in a way, you know, because you could go the other way and, and have an album that he didn't like. And, then of course, that sells albums, too. People then want to hear what he didn't like. But I was delighted that he liked every cut. You know, if you talk to Earl, he probably told you that he said that he liked uh, liked it all.
4: Uh-huh. Now, by contrast, when you imitated Nixon, he wondered why that man was talking funny that way.
8: Well, Nixon never knew what I was doing. Nixon was sort of in another world. He uh, Not much sense of humor there. He never, he never really knew what I was doing. I mean, when I shook my jowls and, and said, uh, let me say this about that. I want to make this perfectly clear. He didn't know why I was doing that. <laughs> he didn't see himself just said to Pat why is that young man speaking in that strange way <laughs>
7: and what was Rich Little's favorite comedy routine on the first Family Rides Again
8: my favorite cut really was the it was a late night phone call with Johnny Carson because I had more fun doing it when I played both parts and uh, I, I was really happy with a lot of the material on that because it was, it was pretty far out but it was pure Carson
2: And uh, that, I think that's my favorite cut, yeah. Hello, who is this? Johnny Carson, this is your president speaking. Ah, no kidding. What, what can I do for you, Mr. Sarnoff? No, not the president of your network, the president of the United States. Well, why the heck are you calling me in the middle of the night? Well, you've been depriving millions of Americans sleep for years. So I thought it was time to turn the tables. Besides, I have a bone to pick with you. I thought all the bones were going into your school lunch program. (laughs) No, I'm talking about your late night show. I found your Karnak bit particularly offensive. It started with the very first question. No, that's answer. Carnac, the ancient and mysterious visitor from the east, always starts by giving the answer. Now the questions are sealed in envelopes, which are being placed in mayonnaise jars and kept under Funk and Waggles' porch, and they've been there since noon. And the first answer was, "Send in the clowns." And the question is, how does President Reagan call a cabinet meeting? <laughs> <laughs> What what about Carnac's next answer? An atheist and Reagan's economic program. An atheist and Reagan's economic program. And the question is, name two things that haven't got a prayer. (laughs) And the next answer was even worse. How worse was it? (laughs) Washington, Jefferson, and Reagan. Washington, Jefferson, and Reagan. And what's the answer, oh oh, sage of the East? (laughs) Name three presidents born in the 18th century. (laughs) May a diseased poultryman stage a pecking contest in your shorts. (laughs) Now come on, Mr. President. (laughs) Where's your sense of humor? Now, I know you like good jokes because your budget is full of them. (laughs) Well, how about this one? Agent Orange. Agent Orange. And the question is, who handles the president's hair at the William Morris Agency? (laughs) Well, well, that may have bugged you, but the next letter from Karnak wasn't political at all. Remember, the answer was AWACS missile. AWAX Missile. And the question is, at Madame Tussauds in Paris, what is the figure of Bishop Sheen holding in his hand? (laughs) Yes,
3: boo, boo.
2: (laughs) May a camel with a weak kidney find your jelly bean jar? Well, that's very amusing, but I'm still upset about the rest of Karnak's answers, especially the one that said Mediterranean fruit fly. Mediterranean fruit fly. And the question is, what kind of zippers do you put in an Italian sissy's pants? <laughs> I, I never did that one. I know, I just wanted to see if I could say it without spitting. But you did do a Karnak on William Sapphire. The answer was William Sapphire. And the question is, what was Shakespeare's first name, Kingfish? (laughs) May a dog in heat romance your shin for the month of November. You know, if you found that offensive, the last envelope must have made you bananas. Well, it certainly did. The answer was King Hussein, Richard Nixon, and Alexander Haig. Ah, King Hussein, Richard Nixon, and Alexander Haig. Name a chic, a sneak, and a geek. <laughs> Here's Reagan. Good night, Johnny. Listening to Earl Dowd's
7: first family albums, the Von Meter albums and the Rich Little One, you'll find the humor to be almost identical. Good, clean fun, poked at the leader of the country. Earl
8: never changed that format from the first uh, album, the first family. I mean, it's basically the same uh, format entirely. In other words, what you do is you have a sketch on Reagan and people around him on everyday situations that happen to him, and then you have a surprise ending usually at the end, a little cute uh, ending. And uh, that's what he did on the Vaughn on the meter on the Kennedy album. And, and that's what he's doing in this one. And really, the albums are are very similar in a way. I, I was really delighted that, uh, that the material turned out as well as it did. And uh-huh. I can say that because I didn't really write that much on the album. I ended up rewriting a lot of
2: things. But um, I think
7: that the writing was pretty good on this album. When Ronald Reagan wrote his letter to Rich Little congratulating him on his impression of the chief executive, he said he couldn't understand why Rich Little was having so much trouble with the third piece of the pie. And that humorous remark refers to Earl Dowd's favorite cut on the first family rides again. Well, I like Reaganomics because I think it's pertinent to something that's going on today that everyone's very concerned with, and
1: it sort of says something, too. and. uh and I wrote it, very (laughs) modest of me. Stand by, Mr. President, we're on the air. Okay, Q
2: Brinkley. Mr. President, I wanna start off this interview by asking you about your economic policies, which have baffled the experts. Can you please explain Reaganomics and what Reaganomics really mean? (laughs) Well, certainly. Now I'd like to keep things simple so we can all understand. Let's suppose your mom baked a big blueberry pie. Now that pie represents the wealth of this country. Now take that pie and cut it in half. The top half is defense spending. The bottom half is for domestic programs and the other half is for the national debt. Well, wait a minute. We have three halves and a pie has only two halves. No, you don't seem to understand. Let's look at it another way. You have three apples, not two apples, but three apples. Now one apple is for the Congress. The second apple is for the judicial system and the third apple is for the military. Now you have three glasses. Divide the first apple into four parts and put one part in the third glass and the two other parts in the first and second glass. Now that's the gross national product for the next fiscal year. Now take the second apple and divide it into four parts. Put three of the parts in the first glass with two of the parts from the first apple and put the remaining two parts of the second apple into the second glass with one of the parts from the third apple which you will divide up into six parts. Now that represents the balance of payments, the debt figure on the New Jersey lottery and the foreign aid deficit. Now take all the pies and all the apples from all the glasses and mash them together. (laughs) Mash them together? That's right, mash them together with the blueberry pies in the galvanized tub. And that represents the entire budget of the United States of America. Mr. President, that would be a mess. That's right.
7: One thing both Rich Little and Earl Dowd seem to appreciate is the spirit with which all this nonsense was taken in the White House. It's probably a measure of the man that the most powerful leader in the world can laugh along when others poke fun of him. And it's a measure of the country when it gives its people the right to laugh at the leaders if the people want to. But Rich Little wasn't prepared for one thing that happened.
4: I understand the president even did some impressions for you when he met you.
8: Yeah, he did Truman Capote and Jimmy Stewart for me, which shows what a <laughs> wild sense of humor he has. As Jimmy Stewart uh, was fair, but his Truman Capote was quite funny. Is that right? Yeah, because he rubbed his eye and he, and he did all the things that little Truman does, you know. and It was, it was quite interesting to see the president of our country doing Truman Capote, you know. (laughs) Could you imagine him uh, standing up, uh, and now the president will address the nation, Mr. President. Well, I found I'd open with a Truman Capote joke. (laughs) 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 uh, I wouldn't say he's going to do that, but he, uh, he has a wild sense of humor.
7: The first family rides again. Rich Little
1: and
0: Earl Dowd. And that's it. Part two, hour two of The First Family Rides Again, our special on presidential humor, an interview feature I did back in my radio career in 1982. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you'll join me next time for more fun on the off-ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with the Cedarburg Public Library, Cedarburg, Wisconsin. This is Bob Smith.